At a time when the world is grappling with the imminence and enormity of climate change, the continuation of fracking operations moves the U.S. away from its climate goals, not toward them. More immediately, the industry's ability to avoid federal environmental regulation and harm the health of the communities where fracking is being conducted is alarming. In 2005, under the Bush-Cheney administration, the Energy Policy Act freed fracking from regulations required by the Environmental Protection Agency's Underground Injection Control Program, which is designed to protect underground drinking water sources. People directly affected by fracking see themselves as more than statistics. As Condi White, a colleague of ours who works with the Indigenous Environmental Network, told a group of scientists researching fracking, quote, I'm more than just a statistic, more than just a study. We've been impacted on the ground every single day since this fracking atrocity began in our home, end quote. That was Chelsea Clinton, vice chair of the Clinton Foundation, reading from her first opinion essay entitled End Fracking Exemptions, A Threat to Maternal and Public Health, written with Terry McGovern and Michaela Martinez, two of her colleagues at the Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. In that conversation, you may hear her family a little bit. So it goes as a working parent in the pandemic. At Cytiva, we understand that the health of people and the health of the planet are deeply interconnected. We recognize that integrating sustainability into our business will limit our impact on the environment and help us realize our vision of a world where access to life-changing therapies transforms human health. Learn how we are seizing sustainability at Cytiva.com sustainability. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A.com forward slash sustainability. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. Welcome to the podcast, Chelsea. Thank you so much for having me today. Looking forward to our conversation. You know, I'm guessing that as a youth and a teenager, you were able to see public health, both its successes and failures, up close. Can you remember your earliest experience with public health? Yes. Um, you know, there, there are two experiences that really come to mind. The first um, connects in kind of the broader sense to our conversation today in that when I was a uh, little girl uh, growing up in Little Rock, Arkansas in the, in the 1980s, um, I... I began to care intensely um, about uh, endangered species and and the environment and um, kind of today what we would you know call climate change and my um, my grandmother my my mother's mother um, and my grandfather uh, who admittedly I called my pop pop had had moved to Arkansas in 1987 and um, I have this vivid memory of of my grandmother telling me that she wanted um, she wanted to get me a present for Christmas that kind of would enable me to do something and not just sort of receive something. And she, um, over the next few years, um, would give me annual memberships to 
at the World Wildlife Fund and Greenpeace and Conservation International. And I remember being so excited when I would receive like newsletters in the mail. Like what a big deal that was to like receive mail with my name on it, like from these organizations um, who I just thought, you know, were doing such important work to help um, save animals and save the environment. And I remember reading in some of those newsletters about how of our environmental crises were also health crises. And um, that was really um, illuminating to me and educational to me. You know, as a kid, I wasn't learning about that. And um, in my fifth grade science class, although Mrs. Linhoff, you were fantastic in case you're listening. Um, and so kind of that was, you know, one really important experience. And then another important experience I had as a kid, Pat, was um, when Magic Johnson talked about being HIV positive. And just, I remember vividly, I was standing in um, the headquarters of my father's 1992 presidential campaign in Little Rock. I think um, we're just going to stay with the envelope theme. I think I was either like stuffing envelopes or sealing envelopes, um, you know, for the campaign because that's kind of what you can do when you're a kid and your dad's running for president. And um, and watching him on, on television um, just refused to be stigmatized or shamed for his HIV status. Um, and that really started now a lifelong interest uh, uh, in in the public health crisis um, of AIDS and especially in the public health crisis um, that is uh, the ongoing stigma, unfortunately. So what nudged you toward the intersection of environmental justice and health? Was it that early experience with the newsletters or other things? Well, I'm sure that it probably started with uh, the early experience of the newsletters. Um, and certainly, you know, through our um, our kind of global health uh, and and gender work um, at the Mailman School and working with you know, my uh, just terrific friend and colleague, Terry McGovern, of really trying to help um, kind of use our, our platform at Mailman to um, kind of illuminate issues that may not first be seen as public health issues, um, especially illuminate issues that often are public health challenges that do fall most heavily on on women and children and yet may not be recognized as such. And it was really, I think, through kind of those um, conversations and efforts that um, a focus on um, environmental health justice um, kind of very much became kind of part of our work. And then, of course, that had to include um, the work that is still very much ongoing around around fracking. So that's, so your recent first opinion focused on fracking and its effects on health, especially maternal health. Fracking, short for hydraulic fracturing, is a way to extract gas and oil trapped in rock. Now, neither of us is a petrochemical engineer, no, we are um, not, Pat. We have many other um, qualifications and competencies, but um, but but those are not among them. <laughs> but we probably need to take a stab at telling people what it is for people who aren't really familiar with it. Do you want to take first dibs? Yeah, sure. You know, hydraulic fracking has actually been around for um, a long time. I mean, Halliburton first pioneered and patented fracking technology um, shortly after World War II in 1949, um, but it didn't become... Um, more widely used until until much later. And as you mentioned, it is a, a way of extracting um, kind of arguably kind of anything that might be underground. Um, and the way that kind of hydraulic fracking or extraction works is by the injection of, you know, 
literally millions of gallons of water, you know, highly pressurized into into shale formations to then um, extract kind of whatever the fracking is being used to to target. You know, in 1997, there was a, a court case um, in which a federal court ruled that um, actually uh, the EPA under the Safe uh, Drinking Water Act um, had the authority to um, to regulate fracking. Um, and so there was this sort of short window of time whereby the EPA really um, was kind of initially gearing up and then and then beginning to um, to really monitor and kind of regulate fracking and the various chemicals that are used alongside those millions of gallons of water kind of in the hydraulic fracking process. Um, but then as I kind of read in that excerpt from the piece that we published, you know, in 2005, um, the Bush Cheney administration, um, you know, put a, put a stop to this. You know, largely, um, largely pushed by Halliburton again, kind of the the company that had first pioneered and patented the kind of um, kind of fracking technology, you know, decades earlier. And so now we are still kind of um, living in that era of of the Halliburton loophole, kind of as the 2005. Um, Kind of decision from the kind of Bush Cheney administration, um, kind of has you know has weighed upon us. And so the the hazard here, as I as I understand it, is you're you're ramming all this water and chemicals down supposedly below groundwater, and using that to extract stuff. But there's a lot of stuff left in the ground, isn't there? Yeah, so there's there's a lot of um, kind of public health um, related concerns here. I mean, it's the stuff that is left in the ground, and it's the stuff that actually is also kind of left in the surrounding environment. So it's truly as it affects the water that we may drink, the ground in which we may kind of grow our crops, um, the air uh, that um, that we breathe. And, you know, and this is not a small public health issue here in the United States. You know, more than 17 million Americans, you know, live within close uh, proximity. You know, within just you know a few miles of you know hydraulic fracking sites. Have you ever been to an active fracking site? I have not been to an active fracking site. I would not want to go to an active fracking site. I don't think anyone should have to um, go or live or work or go to school or play. Um, Play near an active fracking site. You know, as a, as someone who's still very, you know, in our piece, like we we talk especially about the research because it is just so robust on how um, devastating fracking is for um, for for pregnant women, and and uh, so someone's very much still as a kind of of of, of reproductive age, um, you know, who may decide to have more children in my life, it would just feel like a grossly irresponsible thing to do, and yet there are so many. Um, Americans who are also of reproductive and childbearing age who don't have the choice to avoid um, fracking sites because of where they uh, live, where they work, um, where they go to school. In the excerpt that you read, you mentioned Condi Wilson. It sounds like she lives pretty close to her at a fracking site. Where is that? So she grew up um, in Newtown, North Dakota, um, which is like, you know, Right atop the the bacon shale, mm. um, and you know, so for Condi, but for so many of the um, the women and the men uh, who are kind of leading the efforts to you know to stop and then ultimately you know ban fracking as as Condi um, 
I said, including, you know, as as we quote her in our piece, you know, this is not um, kind of abstract for her, right? This is deeply um, personal to her because it's devastating to her and to her family and to her community. It. Uh, I'm looking at a map of the U.S. right now with fracking sites on it, and it doesn't look like they occur near major metropolitan areas. Um, it looks like they're yeah, funny that, right? You know, small towns and maybe poor towns. Yes. Um, we know that while fracking is uh, very much um, kind of uh, an American way of extracting energy, although certainly not only occurring here in the United States, um, it is not a, a, a burden that falls equally on, on Americans. It falls far more heavily on um, Americans uh, who are living in poverty, who are living in low-income communities, it falls unequally upon um, kind of Black Americans, on uh, Latinx communities, on uh, Indigenous and Native American communities. So uh, very much, uh, Pat, it is equally true to say that while this is, I think, an American public health crisis, like all of our American public health crises, it does not fall equally on Americans. You know, in the early days, I think the narrative was that Natural gas extracted in the U.S. by fracking was going to be an environmentally friendly alternative to burning coal for energy or depending on the Middle East for oil. Has that narrative changed? I don't think it's changed enough, right? If it had changed, we wouldn't be having this conversation, right? If it had changed enough, then I think um, most Americans would understand that it's just unconscionable that, you know, there are just thousands of chemicals that can be used in fracking. And we know, you know, what we know about many of them is that they're not good for us. Um, and we don't know a lot about the rest of them. And I and I just would like to believe that if Americans really understood how much we've just even learned in the last few years, right? I mean, we actually know so much more just in the last few years of research about um, how uh, terrible fracking is for, for public health, especially for our most vulnerable, for um, for pregnant women, for children, you know, that there wouldn't be support for fracking. Um, but I actually think a lot of Americans don't know what the research says. Well, that back to the Halliburton loophole, as you called it, um, one of the problems is that companies don't need to disclose what they're using and don't need to tell us, you know, any of the environmental or health harms of that. Is, do I have that right? Yeah. So, um, this, again, I think is where we do need stronger federal regulation, just period, right? So there's more than a thousand chemicals that are actively used in the fracking industry. Um, we know very little about uh, many of them. Um, I have to believe that the companies using them um, know more about them, but the EPA hasn't measured their toxicity um, or assessed kind of the consequences of that toxicity in any consistent um, manner. and. What we know about, again, the chemicals um, that have been studied is, you know, they're not good for us. They can lead to greater instances of heart disease and cancer and things that are um, dangerous for Americans, for people of, of all ages. So certainly um, there's uh, so much more that we don't know that we need to know. And yet what we know itself should be sufficient to... Um, push toward more robust uh, regulation in general. So it sounds like 
and tell me if I'm wrong here, it sounds like you might be saying that um, in, instead of having a well-regulated fracking industry, it would be better not to have one at all. Well, if I could wage a, wave a magic wand, right. you know, yes. But I would, I, you know, I would much prefer to have a well-regulated fracking industry um, than what we have currently. I also believe that a well-regulated fracking industry um, would effectively, um, you know, be the end of the fracking industry, at least with kind of the current um, toxic mix of, of chemicals that are most commonly used um, kind of by by the fracking industry. They don't account for it's. There's the concept of life cycle analysis. And in fracking, you're able to extract energy and sell it, but you don't really have to roll into the cost of what you're making, the environmental costs at all. And if you had to do that, then the you know, you'd have to charge a pretty penny for the energy that you're extracting. You know, Pat, I think um, on what price there was, you know, a human life, there's just kind of no sufficient kind of um, tax or levy um, or price, depending on kind of one's perspective, um, to put on the fracking industry to continue to justify um the enormous health consequences, not to mention kind of the you know huge amounts of of water um, that are used or the huge amounts of methane that are often released. So someone that you know, Hillary Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, she was sort of promoting fracking in European countries. Um, has your work on the health impact of fracking sparked some interesting dinner discussions? Well, we, you know, in the times of COVID, haven't really had very many uh, dinner conversations. Um, although certainly, as you know, we all become vaccinated, I'm looking forward to many of those over the summer. Um, I think it's safe to say that my mother knows how I feel um, about fracking. And I think it's safe to say that um, she's really aware of the um, research that has emerged, you know, since she left her position um, as Secretary of State, you know, especially, you know, kind of research from, you know, 2016, 17, 18, 19, you know, even last year that has been published in this area. And one of the things that I've most um, admired about, uh, about both of my parents um, is their ability to respond to new, um, new evidence and to kind of different points of views and different stories. So Pat, I don't know um, if she's changed her mind about this, but I certainly uh, hope that she um, would have if she hasn't. And um, the next time I'm lucky enough to see my mom in person for dinner, I will ask her. I saw an article that you and uh, Charles Prabala published in The Atlantic last week calling on the Biden administration to support a kind of controversial proposal to temporarily waive intellectual property rights as a way to increase global supplies of desperately needed COVID-19 vaccines. The timing of the article was impeccable. Um, <laughs> it appeared, I think, on the day the administration announced it was moving forward with that plan. How, how do you think this will help? Well, I certainly am grateful to the Biden-Harris administration um, as commitment uh, to work toward um, a a TRIPS waiver at the WTO, uh, and I'm grateful to um, to the head of the WTO, to uh, uh, Ngozi, for her 
commitment, someone I've known for a long time and deeply admire for her commitment to help steward this process. And yet, you know, the deadline of, I think, December 3rd is uh, insufficiently uh, kind of um, reflective of the urgency of the moment. You know, I certainly would hope that the Biden-Harris administration would um, simply support uh, the proposal uh, from India and South Africa and others that was first um, kind of suggested, kind of formally entered uh, at the at the WTO uh, now well more than six months ago. You know, I think that the Biden administration's um, commitment is a hugely important uh, first step and should not be in any way minimized as a hugely important first step. Um, and yet it's really only a first step because while uh, I think uh, it's an important uh, step and signal for the Biden administration to commit to donating our 60 million doses of AstraZeneca, um, we will not be able to donate our way out of this crisis. What are some of the other public health issues that are on your mind these days and that you're working on? Oh, goodness. Well, at the Clinton Health Access Initiative, an issue that we've been really working on um, for many years, but really with uh, a special focus over the last few years, has a really kind of painful uh, urgency now, which is um, the crisis of inequitable access to medical oxygen. Um, so kind of something that we'd been focused on for um, quite a long time because of how important the access to medical oxygen is, um, especially to um, to women who are in labor, to, to newborns, to people struggling with pneumonia and kind of other, you know, other diseases and health challenges. Um, and we know how unequal access to medical oxygen is globally, even when we're not um, in a COVID-19 pandemic. And yet, kind of this pandemic has only uh, worsened uh, the kind of global uh, inequity of access to um, medical oxygen when the need has never been greater. It's one of those, to me, classic issues where most people in America have no clue that it exists. And people in almost every other country worry about it constantly. Yes, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I have deep, um, deep worry that as we continue to vaccinate um, more people here in the United States, you know, we're talking the day after you know, the FDA recommendation uh, for kind of uh, EUA uh, approval to Pfizer for kind of 12 to 15 year olds. I just am concerned that all of these points of kind of progress and hope and gratitude will diminish our attention to the ongoing crisis uh, around the globe. Um, and I worry then remove the pressure on the Biden-Harris administration to uh, do all that we can to help vaccinate the world, because ultimately that is how we help protect um, public health lives and livelihoods across the globe and here in the United States as well. Some people who grew up in families like yours where politics is in the blood um, go into the family line of business. Do you have any interest in doing that or working in public health in kind of a, an official capacity? You know, I, I grew up seeing my parents serve in very different ways. I mean, while my dad was the governor of Arkansas when I was a little kid, my mom um, you know, did a lot of pro bono legal work and was the chair of the Legal Services Corporation, kind of of legal aid across the United States. And so you know, I, I answer your question in that way first because I never had kind of the model of the only way to 
to serve or to be of service is to is to run for public office or hold public office. And so for me, uh, you know, I very much hope that kind of redirecting interest in me and to um, you know, women that have been really inspiring to me kind of through She Persisted or kind of through public health issues that I think are really important, you know, like through In Fact or kind of through my advocacy on trying to end child marriage kind of with Unchained at Last, kind of which is the organization very much on the front lines trying to do that here in the United States. Um, you know, all of that to me is very much kind of in service of of the different world that I, I want to see and be part of and to live in. Um, I have no plans on running for public office. I certainly think who's in public office matters. And I would hope anyone listening to us can just think over the last uh, year of the difference between, you know, the Trump and the Biden administrations to realize how true that is. Well, Chelsea, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me talk about so many things clearly I care a lot about. I, and I really do think, Pat, like, truly, I don't want people, um, I think especially on fracking, because I tried to say this at one point, although I don't actually know if I did, like so much research has come out truly in the last five years. Absolutely. Like, I don't want people to feel badly. Like, if you didn't pay attention to this issue 10 years ago, like, don't feel badly, right, if you're paying attention to it now for the first time, because truly there's just the evidence base has shifted like you know really powerfully like we had lots of hypotheses like a decade ago but now we have lots of proof well when you were talking you know when i asked about your mom um i can't remember what the what the administration initiative was but it had a name and i i was realizing as you were talking that we really didn't know anything about fracking then you know we knew how it no, worked yeah. and we knew what we you could get from it but we didn't know, as so often happens, what was down the pike. I mean, there's a really, really big study published in 2019. But there were other studies published in like 2016, 17, 18. But I mean, I don't expect everyone to read like all the public health journals that I read either, right? So, and I don't think like this isn't enough in the kind of mainstream domain. And I, I try really hard to like not fall down to like the jargon or because I can fall down into the like, and we know these 223 chemicals are particular. And I was like trying really hard to not not do that. So hopefully I didn't fall into that trap of being too wonky. You did not. Chelsea, this was, this was a lot of fun for me. I look forward to hearing about your continuing work in the public health and global health spheres. Shining a light on problems and working towards solutions like these is, is really work to be proud of. And thank you for it. Oh, thank you, Pat. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast today. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Our senior producer is Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. I love to hear from listeners. Let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And please put podcast in the subject line. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time. <music>